0: Peace Corps gives us a chance to show a side of our country which is too often submerged. Our desire to live in peace, our desire to be of help. There can be no greater service to our country, and no source of pride more real than to be a member of the Peace Corps of the United States. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the episode of the My Peace Corps Story podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Lloyd, and I'm here to help tell the stories of current and returned Peace Corps Volunteers. If you like what you hear today, be sure to connect with me over on Instagram at My Peace Corps Story, on Facebook by searching for My Peace Corps Story, and as always, over at MyPeaceCorpsStory.com. If you have been listening to the show and enjoying it, and you happen to do so on Apple Podcast. Uh, Click that button right now and leave a review for the show. Five-star reviews are extremely appreciated, but more than anything, I want to know what you think so I can better serve my audience. If you are a current or return Peace Corps volunteer, also, maybe uh, consider coming on the show and sharing your story. I love hearing from volunteers who have served all decades, all countries, and no one service is unique. So even if I I have done a recent interview from someone that maybe you even served with, I would still love to have you on the show uh, to just show how unique each individual's experience is. On this week's episode of the podcast, I talk with Alana D. Joseph, who in just a few weeks now i guess we can say it will be releasing her documentary about the peace corps a towering task we talk about her peace corps service in molly her career in film and what it took to put this movie together it was indeed a towering task i think you guys are really going to enjoy this interview so without further ado here's the my peace corps story podcast this is, this is, this is, this is my, my Peace Corps, Peace Corps, my Peace Corps, my Peace Corps story,
1: story, story. My name is Alana D. Joseph, and this is my Peace Corps story.
0: Alana, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing all right. How are you, Tyler?
0: Doing well and excited to talk to you uh, about one-year service to getting into your career in in film, documentary film, producing, directing. Uh, I have a a kind of dream of, of maybe one day pursuing that. I've been playing a lot more with with my camera and equipment. And then third, uh, it coalescing together into a documentary about the Peace Corps. I remember when I came across your project maybe two years ago and thought that it was just the coolest thing and thought, at some point, I need to get someone from this project onto the podcast and as of right now, it's going to be premiering in just a few short months. So I think that the timing is perfect to, to get you on the show, uh, to talk about all the work you've been doing on it uh, as the director, uh, you know, sort of brainchild of it. Uh, So yeah, there's a lot of stuff that I'm very excited to learn more about.
1: Well, Tyler, it's an honor to be on your show. Um, I think we're all storytellers about the Peace Corps and that's a good thing because it's not that easy to tell the Peace Corps story beyond our echo chamber. And so I am to get to talk to you about Peace Corps and my Peace Corps story and your Peace Corps story.
0: Awesome. Well, let's start off by telling the listeners a little bit more about yourself and your service as a Peace Corps volunteer. Where did you serve as a volunteer? When did you serve and what exactly were you doing?
1: I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Mali in West Africa from 1992 to 1994. So I belonged to the uh, vast amount of PISCO volunteers from before the internet era. Uh, There, we had to write letters and it took weeks upon end, uh, if they made it through, and then weeks upon end to get any kind of responses. Uh, West Africa was a very stable area at the time and uh, PISCO volunteers had been a long time in Mali and I was assigned to a small village, uh, or not tiny, there were a thousand people in my village and I studied Bambra to be able to communicate. Now, as we all know, there's no other language program as good as the Peace Corps program, but even with this wonderful language program and and three months of intensive training, uh, you can only get so far in a language. So the total immersion of the two years there uh, proved uh, quite the learning experience, and there was many a time when I wished I had more vocabulary to express my thoughts and um, ideas but uh, it did force me, as it should, uh, to listen more, which, of course, is what Peace Corps is all about, right, is uh, spending the time and listening. And I was a small enterprise development volunteer, so that meant I had a business degree and I was a recent college graduate, as many Peace Corps volunteers are. I, uh, I got to, well, I was trained cross-culturally how to translate my you know, Western business, uh, studies into something that would work on the ground in Mali. And, uh, had the chance to work with uh, a couple of women, women's groups to, uh, um, to develop uh, feasibility studies and discuss how they could possibly get a diesel mill for their village. And I worked with a, um, a young man who owned a motorcycle shop. And uh, learned very quickly that in a culture where you share everything you have, accounting on paper isn't necessarily the most desirable thing because it means everybody knows what you have and the family quickly comes and wants their share. And so it, it forced me to translate some of my skills into into something culturally appropriate. and um, as I think for most Pisco volunteers, uh, the experience for me, was extremely humbling and at the end i probably knew more about what i didn't know than what i actually did know
0: yes peace corps has a way of doing that i definitely feel that i uh, defined the bounds of everything that i don't know much better than really getting to flex uh what i i knew coming in and uh, also awesome to talk to a fellow West African uh, volunteer. I will spare you. Uh, so I actually learned Jula, which is a cousin of Bambara uh, during my Peace Corps service. Uh, so I, I'm not going to be, be quizzing you on that and seeing how uh, your Bambara has held up for the past uh, 20 years. So you don't have to worry there.
1: Excellent, uh, because that would be extremely disappointing. Actually, there's a kind of a neat story. My mother was in an assisted living facility here in Denver, where I live. And it turned out that much of the staff were from Senegal and Mali. And when they found out that I knew a few words of Bambra, they would always greet me with quite a huge conversation of Bambra, uh, to which I usually just nodded and smiled because my Bambra ran out after the initial greetings. Mm. Um, But they were just so incredibly excited that there would be somebody in Denver, um, an, an American in Denver, who would speak Bambra.
0: Uh, it is always amazing when you can find someone who speaks local language like that. I have surprised a few uh, Uber and Lyft drivers and then one random guy on the street in the middle of Indiana just because he was wearing a, a shirt that I knew. He like, this person has to speak Bombra, and I yelled at him from across the street, uh, Ani sogama," and he was just baffled that this tall white guy uh, was speaking his language now you you started getting into a little bit of the the projects that you were doing, uh, and where where exactly was your community in Mali? Uh, you were pre pre-internet. Were you also living in a community with no electricity, no running water? what were What were the living conditions in Mali for you?
1: So my village was about a hundred kilometers south of Bamako, the capital on the paved road. So that was a pretty good ride because it was newly paved. And then another 10 kilometers into the bush in on a, on a path uh, that the uh, taxi drivers refused to take their cars on because it was just so bad. So we had to walk, take our bicycles and uh, the other option, of course, my era of Peace Corps volunteers, we had motorcycles. So I had a motorcycle that I could take back and forth as well, which I tried to avoid because it just made me stand out like a sore thumb. Um, and then, uh, yes, there was no running water, no electricity. A Swiss NGO had come through Helvetica, and they had, um, they had put in three freshwater pumps into my village, and those were wonderful to have. So I still had to walk and uh, to get the water and carry it in a bucket on my head, but it was a lot better than having to fish it out of a questionable well.
0: Well, uh, kudos to you for uh, mastering the the water balancing technique. I I never got it. I always went with the the two badones and either uh, carried them or strapped them onto my bicycle because I was of the era of bicycle peace corps volunteers uh not not of ones that had a motorcycle which was probably better for my own health and safety as a volunteer. Yeah.
1: I would hardly say that I mastered that ability. I was usually soaked by the time I got to my house, and I usually only had half a bucket of water left on my head. But I did provide a lot of entertainment to my fellow villagers um, who thought it was just hilarious how I was unable to master that skill over the entire two years that I practiced
0: it. Well, uh, you know, maybe you could chalk that up for a a shower for the day.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Being a hot climate, it wasn't a bad thing.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. And... You, you were getting into the cultural appropriateness of the, the projects that you were doing. Had you ever been outside of the United States leading up to Mali and experienced uh, another culture as, as different as uh, the, the people you were living with and working with and as a Peace Corps volunteer?
1: I had traveled internationally. In fact, I grew up in Germany, but I had never been to a culture that was so different from the Western cultures that I knew. And it was my first time in Africa.
0: Mm-hmm. And do you think, you know, sort of jumping ahead a little bit, that that started providing you with a a lens to, to see things differently? I know your, your passion as a, a videographer is documentary film, but to start asking those questions and, maybe digging a little bit deeper below below the surface? Do you think a lot of that came from your time as a Peace Corps volunteer?
1: Oh, absolutely. I think um, I think we have a lot of assumptions about cultures we don't know. And until we've been forced this far out of our own culture, we don't know how to ask the right questions. And so I have an example of a project that I worked on where I thought I had all the answers. I even had a book on it, and I still didn't have the right answers. It was a neighboring village uh, that was, it was a lovely village. It was uh, one kilometer away from my village, and I would walk there almost every day, because I really connected to that village, because it was mainly run by women. Most of the men had gone to, uh, to the Ivory Coast to earn some money, and so... Mm-hmm. By the nature of the fact of there not being a lot of men, the women by default came into power and they just had a wonderful atmosphere there and they made uh, water canneries. Um, they would uh, they would get the clay from the bush and then they would bring it and mold it and uh, bring it to their village and mold it and, uh, and then take it out to a field and they would put all the pots in the middle of the field and then stack wood against them and burn them. Now, I haven't done a lot of pottery, but what I've learned from pottery is that you need a lot of heat in a very enclosed space to really burn the pottery tightly. And uh, so I thought, well, you know, this would be the perfect Peace Corps project because here's a way that I can save them some some walking into the woods to get wood um, because they will need less wood if we can build a kiln and then we can all get that in nice and fired up. And actually the volunteer before me had done most of of the legwork on that. And she had said, um, here's some more information where you can help them with that. And then she said to me, I tried teaching them that, but it didn't work. And I tried to talk to them and nobody, everybody was very resistant. And what happened was actually that they had already tried that. And the burning technique that would involve more a hotter fire and less wood uh, was actually burning the clay too tightly so that these water canneries, which depend on being able to be a little porous and sweat in order to keep the water inside cold, um, the burning it too tightly kept the pots from sweating and then the water would get very warm inside those pots. So it completely defeated the purpose of what it was supposed to do. And I even had the book and everything. So we, we had started to experimenting with maybe just a wall around the, the pots and such. And as many Peace Corps projects go, I don't know where that went after I left. But um, I have to admit that I stole that book and gave it to the village. And um, whenever somebody else comes through who can who can read um, and, and help interpret that book, then hopefully uh, they will have something to point to.
0: I th- that is a perfect example. I had the same style of pottery in my community, and it underlines the the assumptions that we come into. You know, you see a, a problem that okay, they're they're having to walk, they're having to get wood. So let's fix it. This will alleviate it. And they'll make better pottery because we value pottery for its hardness, its durability, and you're looking for solutions that you can provide there but there's this whole other underlying thing that's going on that these pots actually need to sweat to allow the heat to dissipate, to keep the water cool that we don't take into account. And, you know, a lot of times uh, their practices, which have persisted for uh, thousands of years, are are probably there for a reason. Uh, so that is an excellent example. Yes,
1: and, and we we have so many assumptions because what we know about other cultures is most of it comes from the media right and and media mm-hmm. live sound bites and and dramatic imagery and um the when you form your opinions based on that and we also have uh, the affliction of american exceptionalism thinking we always know everything and we're always best at everything and handicaps us severely um in being able to reach out to another community and I think Peace Corps is quite the remedy for that two years of, of being of, of learning humility being humbled by uh, by the wisdom and knowledge that is out there that we don't even have a clue about is is one of the best teachers there is.
0: mm-hmm yeah you have that first year to hopefully learn some of those lessons make those mistakes. Uh, make the wrong cultural assumptions and then hopefully in the second year you can actually start doing some stuff that works what were some of those projects that you feel worked even if it was on a one individual basis
1: well i do have another good example on that one i had um, you know when you're in Mali, which is of course a uh, uh, french-speaking the, the colonial language is French, so the official language of the country is French, even though in my village there were only two French speakers. <laughs> have a lot of people who approach you to want to learn English. And many, many times I was approached and when I asked people why they wanted to learn in order to assess their level of motivation, I would get the answer that they wanted to go to America and be rich. And I said, well that's not a very good plan to learn a language now, is it? <laughs> and they didn't really want to learn the language. They were just looking for, uh, you know, time to hang out and, and we would then talk and be just fine. But uh, I had one young man who approached me and he said, I want to learn English. And I'm like, yeah, yeah I, I got my my attitude was very big at that point. And I said, yeah, he says, yes, I know you want to go to America and be rich. And he said, no, I have a friend from Ghana and I would like to be able to talk to him. And so uh, one more time to be humbled. I, of course, promised him then that I would teach him English. And he showed up at my door every day after all of his field If It was a long, long day and he was really tired, but he would show up anyway. And every day we did an hour of English lessons and he was able to build up quite the vocabulary and converse with his friend from Ghana, who I got to meet right before I left Mali because he came to visit and uh, spent a market day in my village and my a friend introduced me and said, this is my friend from Ghana who I wanted to talk to. And it was such a lovely lesson that I, it was so little that I gave him, but it was something that was important to him. And it was one of those projects where as a Pisco volunteer, you felt a little redeemed because we spend so much time questioning ourselves, what impact we really have that every once in a while, when you get something right, you're pretty excited. Mm
0: -hmm. And that's one of those probably don't, they don't happen too often where you can see a a tangible result he was able to to talk to his friend and uh, that's had to have been uh, pretty rewarding for you as a volunteer
1: absolutely there were plenty of times and that I didn't have rewarding experiences with failed projects so this was was lovely to have
0: mm-hmm. and I can w- wager that Overall, you had a good experience as a Peace Corps volunteer. If years later you embarked on wanting to create a documentary about Peace Corps, I know that this uh, film isn't a sort of uh, "I love Peace Corps." Here's all the things great about it. It's you know true documentary style and just really investigating the history of Peace Corps, uh, the culture of Peace Corps, and, and everything surrounding it. So it's not a giant. Peace Corps Pep Rally, uh, but did you have any times within your service where you really struggled or questioned yourself and why am I here halfway across the globe uh, trying to, to help these people?
1: I definitely did. I think uh, in Peace Corps training, we all learn about culture shock in the first three months. We get warned that we go through a honeymoon phase and then we go through a shock phase and then we recover and adjust to reality. We start the whole cycle over again and go through the honeymoon phase, go through the shock phase, and slowly it becomes mellower and mellower. mellower. But uh, we definitely experience that culture shock. And when you're in your early 20s, people tell you a lot of things and you file them away, but you don't actually realize them until you're in the midst of them. And so I had been in country for about four or five months, when I was convinced this just wasn't working out. I I didn't see myself being effective. I wasn't doing well with the language, so I wasn't connecting very well. And um, I was very homesick. I was in the depths of culture shock. And so in my mind, I thought I was going to leave. But at the same time, I had heard that in, na- in the neighboring country, Burkina Faso, there was a film festival, well, your country, in every February. So this was in November. And so I said to myself, slightly opportunistically, I would hang around until February, then I would leave early and I would hit that film festival on my way back to the United States. Of course, then by the time February rolled around, I was out of my culture shock. I was very happy where I was and I was connecting well with people, had made good friends and had no more intention of leaving early. And so I never made it to that film festival, but had a full two years of transformative peace corps experience in
0: Mau- maui instead uh so you you never made it to FESPACO.
1: i never made it there no uh
0: well so it, very interesting to hear that that was one of one of the reasons why you stayed you were trying to wait until that came around and i, I guess that if you were already interested in film when you were a volunteer.
1: That's correct. I actually had been involved in filmmaking um, since I was a kid. At age ten, I started uh, looping or working in the in the looping industry. So Germans don't like watching films with subtitles as much as Americans do, mm-hmm. um, and so they actually end up lip syncing most of their movies and TV shows. And so it's a big industry in Germany, and I was part of that, and I got to voice a lot of characters and. But decided soon for myself that I wanted to be on the other side of the camera. And that's how I got into documentary filmmaking later on then.
0: Okay, awesome. And transitioning from peace corps into filmmaking what was that road did you did you know you went to peace corps uh, you had your taste of uh, international development uh, living in sub-saharan africa did you know that you wanted to go back into film when you first set off to peace corps
1: you know i don't know I, i don't think that my my career plans were that clear to me when i joined the peace corps but I recently found a letter that I had written to the Peace Corps after I got back in 94, uh, suggesting that I could do some documentaries for the Peace Corps. I, I got a letter that politely declined <laughs> my mm-hmm. help, which was quite understandable because I had zero experience and, uh, other than my actual Peace Corps volunteer experience and was probably not very qualified to do it. But it proved to me that I had this idea of a Peace Corps documentary in my head long before I actually—I was long before I was qualified to make it, and long before uh, um, it was needed.
0: <laughs> well, uh, before talking, I, I asked you when you started on the documentary, and you said you filmed the first interview almost six years ago. But it sounds like that this project is was not six years in the making, uh, but more than two decades in the making.
1: Absolutely, you could say it's my midlife crisis project. I've been it's been uh, simmering there ever since my twenties, and it took me to my late forties to actually start doing it.
0: Mm-hmm. So, what was your route in uh, from leaving Peace Corps to getting into film?
1: Well, since I wanted to be on the other side, on the other side of the camera and interested in the in the shaping of stories, I actually worked my way up uh, from you know being a grip to running teleprompters, to doing audio and camera, and worked at a local PBS station for a while, and did some field video, and kind of assembled this odd collection of experiences for the various roles in film, and found myself at one point as the second assistant to the B camera for a made-for-TV movie in Puerto Vallarta, Mexico. And it was that I uh, met this amazing woman, um, Brie Murphy. She's no longer alive. She was one of the first female directors of photography in Hollywood working as a camera woman on uh, on B-horror movies. And I had lunch with her. She was retired down in Puerto Vallarta. And I was telling her about my interest in filmmaking and, and how I would love to direct and pull stories together. And she said, girl, you need to stop your dream of being a Hollywood director. What you need to do is do documentaries. Then you can really craft your stories. And it was at that moment that I decided, okay, maybe I don't need to be going, going to Hollywood shooting with 35 millimeter cameras. Maybe what it is is I need to focus on the actual stories I want to tell. And, uh, and ever since I've been in documentaries.
0: Okay. And what, what was your your first project when you were given this advice, do documentaries, don't, don't chase that dream in Hollywood? What was your first project?
1: Well, I was lucky to meet up with a filmmaker who was working for the U.S. Forest Service, and he needed some help. He was in charge of the Rocky Mountain region and uh, pulling together all videos that the Forest Service needed for the area and had a big project about the grasslands. And she said, Alana, I need footage of the grasslands, take the camera package, go out into the field for a week, and uh, get nothing but grassland footage. And this is, this is grasses, this is trees, this is animals, this is sunrises, sunsets, everything beautiful. It's to this day, probably my best assignment I've ever had. And, uh, and I was staying at these great little rinky-dink motels that advertised that they had color television and uh, and got a lot of footage and then got to pull that together with him into a story about the National Grasslands. And then from that evolved the next big documentary where he and his um, fellow filmmakers from the Pacific region... We're developing a documentary about the U.S. Forest Service, which was uh, slated to come out in time for the centennial of the U.S. Forest Service called The Greatest Good. And that is where I first got to associate produce on that project. And it was it was quite the undertaking. And uh, I have I learned so much on that project that I'm applying every day for the Peace Corps documentary because it, too, was an institutional history. Of course, it was 100 years of history, so even even more ambitious than our 58-year history at this point. But it involved a lot of contemporary footage and it involved all the historical research and digging through the archives that we're doing right now. And from there, moved with that same team then into another documentary about conservationist Elder Leopold. And then uh, it turned out that on that team working on the Elder Leopold documentary called Green Fire... Uh, We found out there were multiple return Peace Corps volunteers on that same team. And so we said, what we need is a documentary about the Peace Corps. And uh, somebody faithfully said, oh, yeah, there ought to be the money for that. And here we are six years later with the almost finished documentary ready to premiere in September.
0: Uh, what a journey. And I have seen the, the Greatest Good. I've seen that. And I did haven't seen Green Fire, but uh, on the bookshelf that is across from me is the Sand County Almanac. So I am a big fan of Aldo Leopold.
1: Excellent. Yes, I, I think anybody who reads him or who learns about him realizes how far ahead of his time he was and what a sage soul he was and of course, now with me, with my two souls of the the Forest Service Conservationist soul and the Peace Corps soul, I want to bring Sergeant Shriver and Elder Leopold together, neither of whom, of course, I can bring together. But uh, um, those would be two wise men to talk to each other.
0: Mm-hmm. And the film uh, for, for for the Peace Corps, uh, A Towering Task, you've been working on this for, for six years from the start of filming it, you've interviewed a ton of people that have been involved with the Peace Corps from the very, very beginning up until now. Do you have any favorite interviews uh, from uh, these six years of collecting information about the Peace Corps?
1: It's hard to say because all of them were inspiring in their own right, of course. But of course, yes, there, there are moments that stand out um, from the others, because you just don't have opportunities of interviews like that all that often, and so our we did three production trips that went to peace corps countries we went to the Dominican Republic, we went to Liberia, and we went to Ukraine,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: we were floored to be able to interview. The at that time sitting president of Liberia, while we were in country, uh, President Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, who's also a Nobel Peace Laureate, uh, gave us half an hour, and we uh, it was fantastic. I mean, she was a sitting president; here we were, this this unassuming documentary crew, and she was just one of the most gracious people. And so incredibly wise as a as a leader that it was wonderful to be able to interview her. And I'm, I'm excited to say that she will be coming to the premiere in D.C. And then, of course, you know, we had another awesome opportunity where a returned Peace Corps volunteer who had been a volunteer in 1965 in the Dominican Republic said that he would come down to the Dominican Republic while we were there. And so we were able to videotape him with his former counterparts in the barrio, in the neighborhood where he worked. And they were just strolling the streets and discussing how they dealt with the revolution that was going on at the time and um, how Kirby Jones is the name of the uh, Pisco volunteer, how Kirby um, brought food into the barrio because of the revolution. There was no food coming into the barrios. And so he and another Pisco volunteer just grabbed a truck and raided the care warehouse and, uh, just wonderful, wonderful stories that I never would have heard otherwise. And, um, so while, while all these interviews have been amazing for me and I have learned so much about the Peace Corps that I just had no idea about, uh, there, there are a few that stand out for sure.
0: Mm-hmm. And of, of those things that you learned about the Peace Corps that, you, you didn't know beforehand were there any surprising facts or stories that that came up during this process
1: many <laughs> um, because the Peace Corps is very good at talking the Peace Corps community I should say is very good at talking to itself we have a very strong echo chamber and mm-hmm. um, the mythology around the Peace Corps is quite incredible so there are incredible stories that you hear that sound really exciting. And we spend many a wild goose chase trying to track down the leads for those stories only to find that they just weren't true. So we would find the protagonists that these stories were circulating about and they would say, no, that never happened. And then at the same time, you'd find out other stories that were absolutely true that nobody even was talking about. So like the Peace Corps volunteers that were on the ground in the Dominican Republic during revolution or the Peace Corps volunteers that are on the ground right now in Ukraine during a war that's going on. Uh, you don't hear as much about that, but you hear stories about, about oh my gosh, I can't think right now about... Um, what mythologies ended up being busted. I know there was this one story about the Dominican revolution that we heard that there was a a volunteer where in a village where people made a sign that said um, Yankees go home, but you Peace Corps volunteers stay. And so we managed to track down that very Peace Corps volunteer uh, at the time returned, Pisco Volunteer, of course. And we asked him, and he said, uh, uh, we asked him, is there any picture of that sign? Because how incredibly powerful would that be in our documentary to be able to show that picture? Yankees go home, but Pisco Volunteers stay. And he said, yeah, there never was a picture. They, they chanted that, and but there's no recording of that. Uh, so so we were unable to show quite that um, that visual. But the story could still be told around it. Uh, but that was one of the myths we had to bust, unfortunately.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Peace Corps does have a lot of mythology around it. Uh, the, the things that were said to have been started by volunteers, caused by volunteers, uh, revolutions, uh, drug cartels, uh, and then the stories that are more uh, hilarious of things that Peace Corps volunteers did or shenanigans that they they found themselves in. Uh, so it's definitely would have been fun to explore some of those.
1: Well, and like parenthood, where you quickly learn never to state an absolute because a couple days later, you will find yourself doing exactly what you swore you would never do. In Peace Corps, anytime you hear something, somebody say something, Peace Corps never did that, or Peace Corps always did that, you have to question it. Because with every era, Peace Corps has Peace Corps has been pretty much anywhere, everywhere has done pretty much anything. So it's it's an incredible uh, wide array of experiences that have happened over the, over time, and each one of us has such a small slice of of a perspective on what the whole Peace Corps is that the assumption always is Peace Corps is what we've experienced, um, but it really has had so many different. Uh, moments and and one of the things that has been so exciting in in producing this documentary is that wherever something big happened in history you will find peace corps volunteers not as the instigators of the horrible things happening in history but as in somehow there's always a peace corps volunteer involved because we are in 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 all these international places and we have all these international connections so when we were talking about the Carter era in peace corps we're like okay what story should we tell around this and then we find out that three of the iran hostages were returned peace corps volunteers it mm-hmm. was so incredibly surprising to us that wherever we turn to find these milestones of history there always was a peace corps story to tell around it
0: yeah uh, peace corps volunteers have ways of finding themselves in very interesting places
1: <laughs> yes
0: now in in the documentary uh do you get into some of the uh, less fortunate moments of, of Peace Corps history uh, the the loss of life of volunteers uh, the tragic accidents that happen and some of maybe the uh, black eyes on the the history of Peace Corps or I'm thinking uh, the, the the rumors but uh, somewhat founded of CIA involvement infiltration of Peace Corps and trying to recruit volunteers did you touch on any of that uh in the documentary
1: we do um and i think it's important in a documentary to tell the whole story warts and all and and i I think people will believe the story more if they know that you're being frank and transparent and open and including everything rather than if you're trying to sell them something and um so but we did we did dive deep into the whole CIA rumors and have not been able to find anything remotely uh, confirm any anything like that in fact we had a we have Chris Dodd on camera and that soundbite is in the film where he talks about you know the hanging out with Fidel Castro and Fidel saying to him well you know I've spent years and years and years searching for Pisco Vontier who was a CIA agent because if I had <laughs> found just one just one I could have taken down the agency <laughs> but he never found one And um, we have this wonderful original phone call in the film between John F. Kennedy and Sergeant Shriver, where Shriver calls John F. Kennedy. And this is in the first years of the Peace Corps. And he says, "Um, you know, you promised me that there weren't going to be any any spies in the Peace Corps. And but we have a we have a training group here right now that looks a little suspicious. And I need you to I've talked to the CIA and they said that, you know, I forget how he says it, but he, he says something along the lines of they they think they know better than anybody else, and JFK just says get them out of there because we don't want anything to discredit this idea of the Peace Corps because we need to have this separation of Peace Corps from foreign policy. So, from the beginning on, there was a fight around that, and there was a struggle to keep the Peace Corps independent, and it was so important. Not that that Peace Corps volunteers would have made these great spies or anything like that, because I don't think we were qualified.
0: No, but, we would. <laughs>
1: <laughs> But more in the sense of um, in order to bridge cultures, you need trust. And if anything undermines that trust, like a suspicion of being a spy or a suspicion of having ulterior motives other than being there, I hate to use the word to help because that sounds so imperialistic and condescending. But to be there in a shared experience, it it, from the beginning makes it really, really difficult then to to bridge any kind of culture. And Shriver realized that right away. JFK realized that right away. And so so it's a continuing struggle because, of course, you don't have to be a spy to be used as a tool for the foreign service. And um, and so when in the 80s, suddenly volunteer numbers are ramping up in Honduras at the same time that the Iran-Contra thing is going on, there are quest- it raises questions. It doesn't mean that the volunteers are spies or they're doing anything nefarious, but it suddenly makes the Peace Corps look more like a, a, a tool, a, a smile mm-hmm. on the face, as one of our interviewees put it. And so I think it's it's one of the most important themes around the Peace Corps is how do we keep the Peace Corps independent from foreign policy and continue having it be this great connection connector for America to the rest of the world.
0: Mm hmm. Well, I'm definitely excited to to see the film when it comes to D.C. in September. Uh now, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, that it's September 22nd at the Kennedy Center here in D.C., and then September 25th at the National Archives?
1: That is correct.
0: And what about future screenings for people who don't live in D.C., aren't going to be able to make it out to see the film? Is this film going to have a larger distribution? What are the plans for it?
1: So when we produced the Forest Service documentary, we had over 1,000 screenings following the premiere over the course of the year following the premiere across the country. And so my goal is to have at least a thousand screenings across the country after the premiere of a towering task. And I think that's very doable because we have an incredible network of return Peace Corps volunteers and we're already getting requests from universities, from film festivals, from libraries and conferences and, and whatnot. Uh, the the sky's the limit of possible uh, venues like uh, people have suggested Amtrak and and um, airlines and all kinds of different ways of, of showing the documentary. And uh, but the added factor, of course, with Peace Corps is that it's an international organization. And so our secondary goal is to have at least one screening in each of the 141 Peace Corps countries. Uh, and then, you know, those can be in the living room of uh, of somebody uh, an expat or a re- return peace corps volunteer that lives in that country or it can be a gala screening or hoping to have a big screening in liberia and maybe we can even persuade president surlee to attend that as well um and then once we're done with the with the community screenings and the film festivals we will continue on to uh, broadcast we're in communication with various public television stations and uh and streaming eventually uh, so I, I think we'll, we will get the broadest possible distribution that we can get. The idea is that we're talking to the American public. This is not an echo chamber documentary where we uh, congratulate, congratulate each, each other for this great experience that we've had, but rather that we bring Peace Corps back into the American dining room dinner conversation, um, that we can talk about Peace Corps again and don't run into what... Uh, um, RPCV Alison O'Donnell explained to me is called the new refrigerator syndrome, where the Peace Corps volunteer comes home and uh, starts telling their parents about uh, this transformative, these transformative two years of their life. And about two to three minutes into the conversation, mom says, well, that's nice, dear. Did we tell you we got a new refrigerator? And hopefully we can break through that and uh, and start delving a little deeper into the Peace Corps conversation with America in general.
0: Uh, well, I definitely understand that new refrigerator sort of analogy and story. That's kind of one of the reasons that I, I do this podcast to allow volunteers to have a voice, have an opportunity to spend more than two to three minutes, more, more than giving their highlight reel and start delving into their experiences so I'm excited to to see the film. And it sounds like maybe you could finally make your way to Fespaco if you're trying to hit all the Peace Corps countries. I think that could be a perfect way to screen it in Burkina Faso.
1: I think that sounds like the perfect way to come full circle.
0: Yeah. Well, it has been a pleasure spending some time with you learning about your, your Peace Corps service, which I uh, am always interested in. Your film career, which I am equally as interested in, and then the two coming together in this documentary film uh, about the Peace Corps. I take it you will be uh, at the Kennedy Center on the, the 22nd of September.
1: Yes. and And also September 25th at the National Archives.
0: Well, uh, then I will see you there. Uh, I will uh, in- introduce myself in person so you can know the the guy with the Peace Corps podcast. Uh, but it has been a pleasure. Is there anything else uh, that you want to share about uh, your service or this film that the listeners should know?
1: Well, I would just say anybody who wants to see this movie and has ideas of where to show it, contact us on our website, com. And send us a message to let us know where you think this should be shown. And then we'll make sure that we can get to all the venues across the country that you can think of.
0: Okay. Uh, hopefully the listeners take you up on that. And if they want links to anything, they can find them over at my in the show notes for this episode. I'll link out to the website, the various social media uh, platforms that you guys have so they can follow along as this film gets rolling. Uh, Thank you very much for spending some time with me. Uh, to close the show, uh, put you on the spot. This is something that I do with people who come on the show. So it can be either in French or Bambara. Uh, but do you have a a favorite local saying? Uh, you can just say it in English as well. From your time in the Peace Corps, a local saying that kind of embodies your service or something that's just fun that you remember being said over and over again. So do you have a favorite quote or local saying that you would like to share with us?
1: I have to tell you, I love that you're asking me this because I asked that of almost every interviewee that we interviewed for the documentary as well. And we actually are using one of those at the end of the documentary, actually two of those at the end of the documentary. So my favorite saying from Mali in Bambara is doni doni kononi binyagada, which means little by little, the little bird builds its nest. And it has been my mantra through these six years that it has taken to put this documentary together.
0: Uh, I was hoping that you would say that one, uh, being a a Bombardula speaker myself. So thank you very much for for sharing that with us. Uh, Little by little, uh, this film has come together and I'm excited to see it. Uh, We'll be in touch. Look forward to meeting you in person. And thank you for coming on the podcast.
1: Thank you so much, Tyler.
0: And there you have it, another episode of the My Peace Core Story Podcast. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe to the My Peace Core Story Podcast so you get a new one every single week when I release them. As I said at the beginning, if you are a current or returned Peace Corps volunteer or maybe you know a current or returned Peace Corps volunteer who has some amazing stories to share, head on over to mypeacecorstory.com, click one of those buttons that says share your service or share your story and uh, connect with me so we can get you on the show so you can share your unique story. It has been my pleasure taking some time to share Alana's story and about this amazing documentary that she has coming out. Until next time, remember, every volunteer has a story. What's yours?